Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Before we begin, here's a special code that gets you a discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and you get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to on the app. Newscientist.com slash pod20 gets you the 20% discount. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, where we enjoy cheering over all the stuff that's happening in the world of science. I'm your host, Penny Sarchet. And I'm your other host, Rowan Hooper. And this week, we're also joined by New Scientist reporter, Carissa Wong. Hi, Carissa, and welcome. Hello. So let's kick off with a preview of what's coming up. Obviously, the big news since last week is the rise of the Omicron variant, and we'll get to that soon. But what else have we got, Rowan? Uh, Well, what else is colliding black holes, ancient beer vessels from 5,000 years ago, the origin of water on the planet, and the small matter of robots that have learnt to self-replicate. Oh, well, plenty to go at then. But yes, let's start with Omicron then. Yeah, so what is the latest news with this variant and and basically how worried should we be? Yeah, so the the latest news is that it's a bit of a a mix at the moment of um, scrambling to take preemptive measures, but also acknowledging that we we don't really know much about this variant at all yet. So what we do know is that it was first identified in South Africa in November and doesn't necessarily mean that it evolved there, um, but that's where it was found. And it has very rapidly become the most common variant of COVID-19 circulating in that country. So reports this week suggest that Omicron now accounts for three quarters of infections in South Africa. And at the same time, there's also been a surge in COVID infections in the country. So a week or two ago, the country was reporting only around 300 new infections a day. That's now risen to over 8,000 a day, and it will probably be higher still by the time people listen to this podcast. And Omicron infections are now being detected in countries all over the world. Right. So that does sound quite worrying. Yeah, it it does suggest that maybe this variant is more transmissible than the Delta variant, which we already know is much more transmissible than the original COVID-19 virus. But we don't really actually know this for sure. So this is all circumstantial evidence at the moment. And we're waiting on more data before we can actually know how infectious this new variant is. But there is another cause for concern. There is a possibility that this virus might be an immune escape variant. And so what that means is it's it's a variant potentially that can better dodge any COVID-19 antibodies we have, whether those be from vaccination or an earlier infection with a, with an earlier variant. And the reason that we think this might be possible with this one is that there are lots of mutations in this variant, and that includes 30 in the spike protein. So if you remember the spike protein, that's that's the bit of the virus that um, it uses to interact and gain entry to our cells and force its way in. And it's also the protein that we've used vaccines to teach our bodies to recognize and fight. So that, that's quite worrying. And, and the fear is that um, those vaccines will be less protective against this variant as a result. But why are so many countries, you know, including the UK and the US, really focusing on booster shots then as a way to to try to tackle and prepare for Omicron? 
Yeah, at first glance, it seems a bit um, futile if that's the concern. But actually, um, there's strong scientific thinking there that even if our vaccines turn out to be less effective against Omicron, they probably will still provide some protection. um, And it's hoped particularly against severe disease, which is, you know, what really matters in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. And there's also been some good real world data coming through recently, admittedly from Delta, not, not from Omicron, that suggests that booster shots work much better than we might have expected. So it looks like um, rather than the, there was this fear that our immunity would keep waning after each shot and we'd kind of need endless boosters. But actually, potentially that's not what what's going to happen. So it looks like the boosters um, might even push uh, our protection levels to really high levels that we weren't expecting and potentially maintain those levels for longer than after the first or the second dose. It's still early days, but that's all quite promising. And there's some interesting science that explains why that might be the case um, that you can read in the magazine this week. Okay, so does all this mean that vaccines will be enough to get Omicron under control? Well, I mean, certainly not. I mean, in the same way that vaccines aren't enough to to get the current pandemic before Omicron fully under control, not yet anyway. So vaccine coverage worldwide is still low. Even if you just look at the UK, our 12 to 15 year olds have only had one dose. We haven't vaccinated any 5 to 11 year olds yet. So governments worldwide are having to make these decisions again of, of trying to strike what balance they see fit between protecting against this unknown variant and all those social distancing restrictions that we've all become really familiar with. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth saying at this point that UK has chosen the high infection route. So more than 300,000 people tested positive in the UK here uh, the past week. More than 850 have, uh, have died in the past week. And, and you know, we've been seeing numbers like that for, for a while. And that's before Omicron has had any impact on what's happening here. So I think it's important that we take this new variant seriously because there's big unknowns and, and it, it's good to, to be cautious. But we must remember that the UK's lax COVID rules are already taking a, a heavy toll on life. And they provide ample opportunity for, for more variants to, to arise. And, you know, this isn't going to be the only variant we see. As you say, we're waiting for more information on Omicron. So when can we expect that? Um, uh, quite soon, hopefully. So the World Health Organization say that they're expecting more data on transmission within days. So, so that's basically imminent. That'll be really interesting to see and, and will we'll finally give us a, a bit of a clue to what's going on. But it, it may be a bit longer to know about vaccine effectiveness, especially as there's been um, a much lower rate of vaccination so far in South Africa than there has been in, in wealthier countries. And that's obviously prompted a lot of discussion about right. the role of vaccine inequality and all of this. It's worth noting that many of the vaccine manufacturers are already working to develop uh, vaccine shots that are adapted to the new virus, which is is great, but it will probably take a few months to show that they work and and get them signed off and, and know that they're safe and then roll them out. Okay, look, moving from that, let's talk about living robots that have learned how to replicate. Uh, That doesn't sound like the most comforting story after what we've just been talking about. Yeah, Uh, well, let's find out. Carissa, you've been reporting on this story. So what's going on and should we be concerned? I don't think we need to be so concerned. So so this story is about xenobots, which are made from frog cells. And I think you reported that on last year on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So what happened? What do they do? That so last year we we reported these that they made living robots out of frog cells. But what's happened now? Yeah. So now what they've done is they've 
basically use these frog cells again to make these xenobots, these living robots. And they found that these self-assembling robots can actually reproduce themselves now so they can self-replicate. And that wasn't known last year. Yeah. So what? So last year, remember that they could, they self-assembled. But so what have they done to be able to learn how to reproduce or not learn, but, you know, how to actually reproduce? Yeah, so it started with a very chance discovery where they were they took a video of these xenobots and then in the corner of the video, one of the scientists noticed that these cells could pile cells onto each other and help each other grow. Well, they were and sneaking so... off into the corner and reproducing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they were getting up to something in the corner of the dish. Yeah. And um, so that sort of sparked this idea in, the, in their minds, like, oh, could you know, could these organisms actually replicate themselves since they're helping each other grow? Yeah. And yeah, and, and so that's how they sort of discovered they could do this. And it is autonomous, right? So they, these things are just like they they uh, self-assemble automatically. This is also another kind of autonomous replication. Yeah, so so that is the magic of cells um, compared to like traditional artificial materials is that these cells can sense their environment when where they're next to each other and they can grow into these structures, which obviously you can't get if you're just using metal or whatever that yeah. is in a traditional robot. So when they self-assemble, what, what exactly is happening? Yeah, so the, the parent xenobots, um, they're like a bit like bulldozers. And so they like pile up these single cells around them into these clumps. And you can imagine it a bit like rolling up a snowball if you say the snow was the single cells all around the dish and the parent xenobots snowball up these baby xenobots. <laughs> um, and so do they, I mean, because this is unprogrammed, do they think this might shed light on, you know, how the very first organisms managed to reproduce? Yeah, that's what's really cool about this uh, study is that it's a whole new way that we never knew before that an organism could self-replicate. And none of us were there at the origins of life. So we're always <laughs> thinking about, oh, what are the different ways life could have started? And this provides a whole new idea of what could have happened at the origin. Amazing. Um, right, we'll post a link to that story in the show notes and uh, do look watch the video as well because doesn't it look like a Pac-Man? Like w the way it's walking around, like <laughs> running around the, on the dish. Yes, it does. Look, they do look like Pac-Mans bumping into each other. <laughs> time out. It's time to tell you about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has an amazing library of interactive courses that cover topics ranging from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like quantum computing. Coming up in a bit, we'll be discussing the imminent collision of two supermassive black holes. But what are black holes? Well, Brilliant's astrophysics course can easily get you up to speed. It explores how they're formed, how astronomers are able to spot the things even though light can't escape from them, and it explains why black holes aren't black at all. We also have a story coming up about the origin of water and in Brilliant's course on the physics of the everyday, there's a great bit about the water cycle and the physics behind Earth's fresh water supply. Brilliant is a fun way to learn real problem solving by doing it yourself. Whether you're a beginner or advanced, you can get started learning on Brilliant today for free. And better still, the first 200 listeners to sign up using our special link will get 20% off unlimited access to all the courses on Brilliant for a whole year. That link is brilliant.org slash new scientist. That's brilliant.org slash new scientist. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Right, we've had the pandemic and we've had self-replicating swarms of, of cells. Let's let's get something comforting and old. Let's, yes. let's talk ancient Egypt, please. <laughs> yeah, okay. Happily do that. Um, and this is very ancient. This is pre-pharaonic. Egypt. So this is before the pyramid. This is more than this is a story from more than 5000 years ago. Okay, cool. Come at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very important story about how people used to transport their beer to parties. <laughs> News we can use perhaps. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, it's actually a really interesting story as well that it shows how far archaeology has come these days. So there's a site called Hierakonpolis, and it's in southern Egypt on the Nile. And I must admit, I'd never heard of this place until this story came out, Hierakonpolis. It means city of the hawk. And they'd found fragments of pottery there and dated them to through around 3,800 to 3,600 BC. So that's about 600 years before the pharaohs, the first pharaohs ruled Egypt. So you know, it was already a really important archaeological site for understanding the foundations of the sort of ancient Egypt as we think of it. Mm. So what have the fragments they've been finding been telling us? Well, so <laughs> they were found in an ancient brewery and a cemetery. And scientists believed the cemetery was used by the very richest in society. And people had assumed that these fragments came from jars that was used to carry beer. Um, but there was no scientific evidence for this until now. Mm. So what have they done now? So they've used microfossil residue analysis to study the organic remains on the fragments. And they've analysed starch granules, phytoliths, which are silica from plants, yeast cells and beer stone crystals. And putting all that together, they found that basically there's beer residue in the fragments. Um, and they were 10, they found 10 six litre jars, which they were, they believe was used to carry the booze around, basically. And the analysis suggests that this beer was made from wheat, barley and grass. Hmm. I, I love a bit of paleo ethnobotany, but <laughs> yeah. wheat, barley and grass. Not mm. sure about that mix. Yeah, uh, they also say the beer was probably more like thick porridge that had a low alcohol content. <laughs> Sounds like a fun way to start the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, do we know who would have eaten it then? Well, so because it's the recipe is quite complex, that they think that that means the, this alcohol was made for the elites. And because jars, similar jars have been found in this cemetery that's for the elite, uh, the team speculate that the jars were used to carry beer from the brewery um, for, you know, top level rituals and ceremonies, you know, for the afterlife, basically. And the researchers also found fragments of smaller beakers at the cemetery, which the team believed that, you know, the beer jars were decanted into for drinking. 
So not a case then of, of uh, wine for the rich and beer for the masses. This this was very much, this beer was an elite drink or, or porridge of some kind. <laughs> this beer porridge was an elite drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, it's really fascinating, the origin of beer making in Egypt. So there was an industrial brewery, another site called Abydos in 3000 BC. So this new discovery supports the idea of how quality beer production goes back for such a long, long time in Egypt. Mm, amazing to think of it as a 5,000-year-old drink slash porridge. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the beer porridge prevents hangovers because you've got the quenching porridge right there with the with the low alcohol content. And that sounds like a feature that we should investigate <laughs> right away, Carissa. I can imagine it taking brunch uh, places by storm. <laughs> now, moving on as only we can from ancient Egypt to the gravitational mechanics of colliding black holes. Woohoo, yes, of course. Yes. Um, we've got a story about an imminent collision of two nearby supermassive black holes and how colliding black holes could be a breeding ground for tiny black holes. <laughs> imminent, right, let's start with the imminence of this collision, Penny. <laughs> yeah, I'm being a bit cheeky. I do mean it in cosmic terms, so it won't actually happen for 250 million years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when you say nearby, uh, is that also in cosmic terms? Yeah, yeah, it is. So uh, these are in a galaxy 89 million light years from Earth, um, but that's more than five times closer to us, to Earth, than the next closest supermassive black hole pair. So they are relatively nearby. <laughs> uh, right. But if you want to cripple, they're, they're still actually quite far away. <laughs> Uh, but the point is they're colliding. They are, or, or perhaps it's better to say that they're sort of merging very slowly over billions of years. But it, it's interesting uh, for astronomers because they re rarely get to see this kind of process in action at this stage of it anyway. And we've never seen two such enormous objects so close together. One of the black holes has a mass 154 million times that of the sun, and the other one is only 6.3 million times more massive than the sun. Yeah, I can't get my head around that sort of scale. But um, but don't you normally get supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies? And these are off-centre ones. Yeah, exactly. That's normally where we spot them. But it's possible that if we account for off-centre black holes like this too, that could increase the number of known supermassive black holes in the universe by as much as 30%. <laughs> that seems like lots of black holes out there. Um, yeah. And we've had another story this week about how collisions between large black holes could spawn little ones. Yeah, like how they reproduce, like creepy little frog cell robots. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it effectively is. Um, our headline, by the way, on the story was merging black holes may create bubbles that could swallow the universe. Yeah, with it, with a, an emphasis there on the could. <laughs> yeah, the emphasis on the could. Uh, the story is about the area between a pair of large black holes as they collide and how this might provide the conditions to create these dangerous bubbles of what they call true vacuum, making it all bunny ears true vacuum yeah so interesting because i mean does that mean we don't actually have a true vacuum in space already well so apparently in particle physics some people think that our universe may not be in the lowest possible energy state so instead of a true vacuum it may be in a state called a false or metastable vacuum and if any part of the universe were to collapse into a true vacuum the laws of physics as we know them would would also collapse inside that bubble of vacuum and that would expand at the speed of light and eventually swallow everything, hence our headline. Hmm, doesn't sound great, does it? <laughs> Not 
great. Um, <laughs> so the story is how these vacuum bubbles might form at the collision site between black holes. And the good news, though, is that if the bubbles do form, they'll probably immediately fall into the black holes so they wouldn't destroy the universe. Probably won't destroy the universe. I, Pro- I guess that's as, no. as comforting as we can expect from 2021. <laughs> yeah, well, we did have a, a great uh, a great quote from particle physicist Ruth Gregory at King's College London. She says... If one of these bubbles of true vacuum escaped, it would destroy the universe. Oops. <laughs> um, but the fact that the universe is still around suggests that bubbles of true vacuum are rare if they exist at all, she says. Brilliant. Yes. Uh, and we'll post links to both those black hole stories in the show notes and to all the other stories we've spoken about. Okay, we're going to talk about water now because it's something we take for granted and there's still many mysteries about the substance. Yeah, the one about taking it for granted, the thing I always think of is Scott Kelly. Um, he was the US astronaut who spent a year on the International Space Station and he said that when he got back, uh, like when he got back to Houston, he just walked through his house, out the back door and straight into his swimming pool, uh, still in his flight suit because he'd missed water so much. And he said the feeling of being immersed in water was just incredible. Mm, yeah, I can't really imagine going a year without bath or a shower. Yeah. Um, well, the, the mystery we have on water this week is about how it got to Earth in the first place. So isn't that through comets and meteorites that had lots of ice and they kind of deliver it onto the young Earth? Yeah, that's what people, including myself, thought. Um, Studies of meteorites have found them to be surprisingly rich in water. And and that's um, led to this suggestion that early in our planet's history, about 4.6 billion years ago, incoming asteroids delivered water and that allowed Earth to become the habitable world that we have today. Right. However, um, there's a catch. Uh, The composition of the water in meteorites doesn't exactly match that of Earth. So the extraterrestrial version contains more deuterium, which is a heavier form of hydrogen. And and that indicates that there must have been another source, a different source for for much of the water on our planet. Wow. So but where? Yeah, that's the question. Um, So Luke Daly at the University of Glasgow and his colleagues, uh, they've been studying a single grain of material returned from the asteroid Itokawa by the Japanese spacecraft Hayabusa in, in 2010. And they've found evidence that the asteroid had been irradiated by particles in the solar wind, turning a small amount of each dust grain into water. And they say that for every meter cubed of asteroid material, you could get about 20 litres of water. How do you turn dust into water, though? Yeah, so the solar wind consists largely of hydrogen ions emitted by the sun, which combine with oxygen atoms in the asteroid rock to produce this water. And previous research has shown that asteroids like Itokawa can contain a lot of water, but where that water would have come from wasn't clear. Our solar system is thought to have been abundant in dust in its early phases, so some of it could have been turned to water by the solar wind before streaming down onto Earth's surface after its formation. Wow. So I was going to joke about that, you know, there's a river from space, but actually there was almost literally a river from space or rain from space. Yeah, it's quite beautiful if you think about it, isn't it? And and this kind of um, solves that problem we were talking about with um, meteoroid ice being uh, too heavy, having too much deuterium, because this space rain, as you put it, um, that contains less deuterium than that that's delivered by asteroids. Wow, I kind of love this. It feels it's really profound, actually, the way that we re- receive this life-giving water onto our planet. 
Yeah, it's, it's cool, isn't it? And, and the findings could have implications for space exploration too, because Daly says that every rocky surface will have small grains that have been irradiated by solar wind. So if we want to put up permanent human habitation facilities on other worlds, you could look at the dust as a, a way maybe of, of producing water. Yeah, well, I know how enthusiastic you are about human habitation I, I on gonna, other worlds. I was going to keep my lips shut for <laughs> once, but you know, yeah. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Well, that's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Carissa Wong, and thanks to you for listening. Do subscribe and spread the word about our show. And we're on Twitter, at NewScientistPod. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you again next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.